as well. Uh, well, this morning, uh, we're starting a new uh, sermon series called Reform, uh, looking at the way in which God calls us to reform our lives, the way in which God is uh, always on the move to reform the church, uh, to reform uh, communities, to reform the nation and the world. And we see really throughout the history of the church that there have been times that the church has been in need of reform, times when the church has strayed from the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And it, it's interesting because it it didn't take long after the church kind of was first born that it had its first opportunity to experience this reformation uh, in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, you can read about the Jerusalem Council meeting to determine how non-Jewish persons are to be included in the work of Jesus. Uh, and so they met because they had to decide whether non-Jewish persons needed to first become Jews through circumcision, through following Jewish kosher laws before they could become Christian. Uh, they had already kind of added extra steps onto what Jesus had done for us, that, you know, we are saved through faith in his work, through his life, death, and resurrection. And they were already started to add things onto that. Well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. So the decision was made at the Jerusalem Council uh, that salvation was through faith in Jesus, evidenced by a faith that reflected Christ, evidenced by a life that reflected Christ. And, and throughout the first several hundred years uh, after this, there were many competing versions of Christianity that emerged. There were countless debates over Jesus about his humanity and about his divinity, whether he was fully human, whether he was fully divine, whether he was really God who had come to us in flesh, or whether he was just uh, a man who had uh, you know, special powers. Well, in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea met to reform the church, uh, to offer the scriptural teaching about Jesus' nature as fully God and fully human. And from the, this Council of Nicaea emerged uh, the Nicene Creed, uh, which was developed to lead the church in the way of Jesus and the way of the apostles. Well, uh, that sounded great. You would think that the church would be well on its way. We've had a few different councils. Well, in 451 AD, just 125 years later, the church needed reformation once again. Uh, the Council of Chalcedon met to confirm this teaching about Jesus's nature as fully human and fully God. And there were countless councils that continued to meet in the centuries thereafter, but perhaps one of the most known reformations uh, took place in 1517 when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Luther saw the church moving away from repentance and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, saw the church offering indulgences, offering people the opportunity to pay to have their sins forgiven. And so Luther, he stood up to the church. Uh, he was excommunicated, and so he formed a new church and a new movement, a movement we call the Protestant church, right? So you have kind of the Catholic church, there's the Orthodox church, and then there's the Protestant movement, which includes most of our kind of mainline denominations and, and some of our non-denoms are all a part of this Protestant church. So there were others that followed Luther, that followed his lead, and various denominations were formed during that time and, and ongoing since that time. Now, perhaps uh, the most notable reform movement that we might see and recognize is the Methodist movement. In the 1700s, John Wesley 
saw the church of England moving away from preaching the full gospel of Jesus, of how God's grace was truly given for all people, and then how people are called to living a life of holiness in response to what God had done for them. Wesley was an Anglican priest, and he went out into the fields, he went out uh, into the mines, he went out into to, to neighborhoods and on the streets, and he would go and preach as people were coming home from work. He went to the people where they were, showed up in their lives just like God came to where we were to offer them God's grace, to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And then he began to gather them into small groups so they could pursue holy living. This Wesleyan movement began as a, as a protest against the Church of England. And, and though uh, John Wesley never left, never wanted people to leave the Church of England, uh, eventually he sent Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch to start the Methodist Church in America. He realized that the time had come for people to leave the denomination to start something new, a reform movement to lead the church in the way of Jesus and the apostles. And over the past 234 years, there have been multiple denominations that have been born out of this Methodist movement, each operating in the spirit of John Wesley to reform the church. There's the Nazarene Church, the Salvation Army, Free Methodist, African Methodist, Episcopal, uh, even the Assemblies of God have their roots in the Methodist Reformation movement. More than 80 denominations have sprung up out of this first Methodist movement that can trace their roots back to John Wesley. And so over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is uh, take a look at some of Wesley's core convictions for this launch of the Methodist movement. And we're going to read scriptures that are related to them. And I want us to, to ask these three questions of ourselves. Uh, one, how might God be reforming the United Methodist Church? Uh, how is God calling our church to be reformed? And then how does God want to reform me? The reality is that, that God is always reforming people. God is always reforming churches. God is always reforming movements. God is always calling us back to himself and to his word so that we might be reformed. And in all of this uh, reformation, the only thing that doesn't get reformed is God's word. Because it's God's word that does that reforming work. It is God's word that is uh, never changing, that is life altering. It is God's word that does the transformation within us. So this morning we're going to read uh, from Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, John Wesley's thoughts upon Methodism. And uh, so we'll, we'll hear what they have to say to us this morning. So open your Bibles with me if you have them to Romans chapter 12. I'll be reading verse 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. 
And then uh, an excerpt from John Wesley's thoughts upon Methodism. Uh, This was written in 1786, only two years after the founding of the Methodist Church in America. And it's just a small kind of one-page front and back document. We have some copies out in the lobby. I would encourage you to pick one up to take a home to kind of look and see what Wesley thought of uh, as he was launching this new movement. Uh, And so this is what he said. This is the opening paragraph. Uh, Wesley writes, I am not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. So in our, in our scripture reading, as we read, uh, as Paul's writing to the church in Rome, uh, Paul begins by writing about this need that we have for constant renewal, this, this need that we have within our lives for constant reformation. And so he says, because of what God has done for us, because of God's mercy that he has shown in our lives, because of the ways in which Jesus laid down his life for us, that we are to offer our lives sacrificially in response to that. Because of what God has done for us, we are to lay down our lives before God, and we are to allow God's word to renew us, to penetrate our heart, to sink down deep within us, to bring about this change, to lead us, to guide us in the way that God created and called us to be. Now, now I know Paul doesn't flat out say, as he's writing here, that you need to read your Bible every day. He doesn't quite just put it in those terms, but but the renewing of our mind, uh, the transformation of our lives are direct byproducts of being in God's word. Uh, Transformation doesn't come just because I say, you know what? Yeah, I I really I really want this. I really like this. I think it'd be a good idea. Right. It, It only comes as we engage in God's word. If I'm Let's say, you know, I'm, uh, I, I want to I wanna be a little bit healthier. Uh, I, I, the other day I was, I was outside. I was, trying to, um, I was trying to play football. And I got winded really quickly. Uh, my body was a little bit sore after playing. Let's say, like, I, I don't want that soreness. So I might, I, I could just stand around and say, you know what, I, I don't want to be sore. I, I don't want to feel winded whenever I go. It, it's not going to change anything. I actually have to do something. I have to be active. I have to engage in a practice that's going to be transformative if I want that. Uh, that's, that's what God's word is for us. Uh, we can't just say, yeah, you know, I, this sounds nice. I, I'd like to live like God wants me to. We have to engage. Uh, we have to engage with the source that actually has the power to transform us. And that is God's word. Because when we read God's word, the Holy Spirit moves and works within us. We are inviting God to speak into our lives. And so if we want to live the transformed life that Paul talks about, it, it becomes uh, an engagement in God's word. It's the only thing that will enable us to discern God's will. It's the only thing that will keep us from being conformed to this age. Now, being conformed to an age is something that, that oftentimes uh, takes place without us noticing. Uh, mo- most of the time, the, the big things we can kind of catch on and say, oh, no, wait, that's not it. Uh, but, but really being conformed to an age takes place gradually over time. Most of the time, uh, as people within a particular age, within a particular time, we miss the way that the world wants to uh, conform us to its own patterns and away from God's patterns of life. The changes of, of people, of society, uh, even churches, 
uh, moving away from God's will often takes place gradually, usually with some kicking and screaming at first. But if God's people don't stand firm on his word, if they're not being renewed by his word, then conforming will take place. I was recently reading an article uh, where somebody was talking about the normalization of what is now um, checked bag fees whenever you fly. And I'm actually, I'm old enough to remember that you didn't always have to pay a fee to check your bag whenever you would fly. Um, I remember that. It was, it was part of the ticket price. I bought a ticket and I could, I could check my bags and there was no problem. But gradually, airlines started to adopt this checked bag fee. And it started out with just like a small fee, maybe $25 to check your second bag, uh, just something small, something minimal. And it received some outrage. People were upset, but over time, people became accustomed to it. And so the airlines thought, well, hey, well, that worked out well. We'll just bump that second bag fee up a little bit. And I'm not sure what it is now, if it's 50 or 75, depending on where you fly. And then they're going to say the first bag now has a fee attached to it as well. And again, there was some initial outreach, but over time, uh, as newer travelers began to fly, this became the norm. It became the norm for people who don't remember what it was like to fly before the check bag fee, and it became normal for everybody else, a part of life. And now at this day and age, there's, there's no outrage. Whenever they tell you that you have to pay a fee, you just pull out your card and you swipe it. We've come to accept it and, and even almost assume that this is the way things have always been. And the same person observed that in not too long, airlines might begin to charge a fee to use the overhead bin on the plane. <laughs> and I imagine there will be a little bit of outrage at first, but then in the next 20 years, it will be the way that things have always been. Uh, this is similar to what's known as the boiling frog metaphor. Right? The metaphor suggests that if you try to stick a frog in boiling water, that it's just going to jump out. It's going to sense, whoa, this is something crazy, and it's going to jump out. It's going to leave. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get away from that boiling water. But if you stick a frog in room temperature water, and then you gradually heat the water just a little bit over time, allowing the frog to kind of adjust to its surroundings. Maybe it feels like it's at a day at the spa now. Um, but it it will adjust with the temperatures. It will continue to swim and stay in the water and it will swim around until it dies in the boiling water. Now, I mean, I've never, I've never performed this experiment myself. Um, I, I don't know that I would encourage you to do it either. But the metaphor, like, my, my kid wants to do it, is that, so, of course. All right, but, but this metaphor points to the ways that being conformed to the world takes place if we are not allowing our minds to be renewed and transformed by God's word. We can become complacent. We can swim around in the water saying, oh, it's a little bit warm, but it's not too bad as it gradually heats up. And then the next thing we know, we've become the dead sect that Wesley warns about, having the form of religion without the power. And it takes somebody or a group of somebody's to stand up, uh, to jump out of the water and say, hey, there's something that's not right here. We need to get out of this water before we die. It takes somebody to stand up and say, we, we've got to make a change. We need some reformation in order for people to notice what's going on. 
See, this was the case with the Protestant Reformation led by Martin Luther. Uh, the, the practice of indulgences, which is one of the big things that he stood up against within the Catholic Church, it, it kind of started out in, in a, an innocent way. Uh, the teaching was that one couldn't enter into heaven unless they had been purified from every sin. They had been sanctified. And, and if purification didn't fully take place on earth, a person would then go to purgatory where they would spend time as their sins were being purified, washed away. Because you can't enter into God's presence unless you are holy as he is holy. And so they, they created this kind of works-based system in which I would do certain things that would help purify me of my sins. And initially, indulgences were seen as, as this way, as this part of being made right with God while on earth. A person who was repentant could engage in good works, uh, could engage in charitable deeds, maybe in saying particular prayers to show they had truly repented of their sins, that they were truly leaving this behind and moving on to something new. Well, over time, uh, the people of the church began to ask for other things. Well, what if I said my favorite prayer uh, every day for a year. Would that take a year off of my time in purgatory? Now, uh, what if I what if I had these particular acts of devotion that I did? What if I what if I did? Uh, you know, I, I read the upper room every day. Uh, would that you know, if I read it every day, would that take off you know a day for every day that I read it? Uh, what if I attended particular places of worship? What if I traveled to some of these holy sites and I worshipped there? I went on these pilgrimages for God. Would that take some time off of my time in purgatory? Uh, groups began to want indulgences for putting on performances, joining in pre- processions. Uh, good deeds began to include charitable donations, uh, donations that were given to good causes. You know, if I, if I give uh, towards the building of this church, you know, would that, would that take some time off? Sure, sure it will. If I, if I give uh, to, and, and actually, you know, if, if you give to the rebuilding of this church, I will, <laughs> just, sorry, just kidding. Um, I mean, they would, they would give to support, uh, you know, building hospitals, leper colonies, schools, roads, bridges. And eventually there were professional partners who would travel around and who would say, you know, for extraordinary amounts of money, we could help you bypass purgatory altogether, selling salvation from eternal damnation in return for money. And over time, the practice became so commonplace that nobody questioned whether or not it was true, whether or not it was scriptural. And it wasn't until Martin Luther, by, by reading and studying the scriptures, said, you know what, this is, this is wrong. Salvation is not something for sale. Salvation cannot be achieved by our good works, but it's only by grace alone. Through faith in Christ's works alone, that God is the one who forgives sins, that God is the one who offers us salvation. And it's only as he stood up that this practice began to change. Martin Luther and those who heard him, uh, those who agreed with him, they couldn't stay a part of the Catholic Church anymore. Uh, though they stood on the grounds of Scripture, though they stood on the teachings of Jesus and of the apostles, they had to leave the Catholic Church in order to follow God's will. Now, I happen to believe that the metaphorical waters of the United Methodist Church are, are getting a little bit warm. Uh, that John Wesley's fear for what would happen to the people called Methodists uh, in our time is seemingly coming to fruition. And, and some of the attendance and membership numbers for the United Methodist Church in America reflect that. Uh, there's this great religion called Methodism, but in many ways Methodism has moved from offering the full gospel of Jesus 
the true life-giving power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to becoming, in many places, little more than a social agency. Don't get me wrong. This social work is good. I mean, we're, we're hosting teams to come into our community to be a part of the rebuilding and recovery process. Uh, we're, we're partnering with Methodists to do this great work. But if we're only a social work agency and we're not a place of gospel transformation, we will die out. If that's all this local church is, this church will die out. If the only thing that we can offer to somebody is to fix their roof and we fail to offer them the Jesus who can save their souls, we will die out. And so I want, I want you to hear some of this warming of the waters. This comes from this past year's VBS curriculum. It was published uh, by some United Methodist publishers. It was sold by Cokesbury. Uh, it's the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, when you and I read this story, we see this as, as Jesus performing a great miracle, uh, taking the little boy's loaves and fishes and God miraculously multiplying them so that all of the 5,000 men and, and plus even more women and children who were gathered there uh, could have food. Uh, they could have the physical food as they listen and hear Jesus teach them and offer them the spiritual food of life. We, we see this uh, in John's gospel as a sign of who Jesus is as truly God in the flesh. Well, in this United Methodist curriculum, uh, the person teaching the story is to tell something a little bit different. Not, not anything too crazy sounding, but a little bit different. This is what it says. It says, what if the faith of the child, believing his loaves and fish in God's hands could feed the 5,000, inspired others? Maybe there were others there with just a little bit of food uh, that didn't believe their little bit could make a difference. But when the child, uh, when they saw the child give, they decided to give too. Now, this isn't anywhere in the scriptures. This is just supposing, right? What if they saw the child give and so they gave too? And then some more people gave their food and then some more gave their food. And before they knew it, they had enough food for everybody and some leftovers. Maybe God's power physically multiplied the loaves and fishes of a single lunch, or maybe God's power warmed the hearts of those gathered and inspired them to share what they had. I, mean, I can feel the water getting a little bit warmer as I read this. I mean, sure, I, I believe it's important to teach children to share. I teach my own children to share. But we don't teach people to share by, by changing God's word. By, by adding to it, by redefining God's miraculous work in Jesus to fit a different point. But we don't teach children to share by suggesting that Jesus' miraculous power wasn't actually performing miracles, but was instead just getting people to share what they had. Now, see, I don't, I, I don't think that people called Methodists are going to cease to exist in America. The, the, the form of religion will go on but I didn't sign up to follow Jesus to be a part of a dead sect, to have the form of religion without the power. See, the, the power that Wesley talks about, the, the power that transforms lives, that transforms churches and transforms communities, that transforms nation and transforms the world, it doesn't come, you know, just because we show up at a building called church. 
I mean, that might be a good start, but that's not where that power comes from. It doesn't come by, by taking the miraculous works of Jesus and instead making them out to be something that we could teach uh, in, a, in a preschool. Uh, although we can teach Jesus in our preschool, and it's a good thing that we do. But the power of transformation that Wesley talks about, that Paul talks about in Romans 12, comes by the Holy Spirit at work within us. As people working within us as a church, working as churches connect and gather together to seek God, to read his word, to allow his word to truly change us, to renew us, to transform us, to mold us and make us from the inside out. It comes as we spend time in prayer, as we gather in small groups to hold one another accountable to Jesus's teaching, to encourage one another in our following of Jesus's teachings. It comes as we lean into Jesus's life, death, and his resurrection. As we lean into it to be the thing that saves us from our sins. Our sole source of salvation, our sole source of hope. As we lean into Jesus to be the one who rescues us from hell and leads us into eternal life. See, we could teach people to share and they'll still be dead in their sins. But if we teach people Jesus... If we ourselves learn to follow Jesus, if we believe and trust in his name, if we take him at his word, that we will see even greater things done in his name than what he did, we'll see our lives transformed. First ours and then the people around us. And, and if you're following Jesus, if we're truly following Jesus, we won't have to teach people to share because it's going to be a natural byproduct of Christ at work within us we're transformed not just because we we hear something good because we think something nice we're transformed as we encounter and as we know christ as his holy spirit lives and dwells within us as we are renewing our minds daily by reading his word because see even even greater than the miracle of sharing that jesus wants us to engage in uh, is the wonder working power of jesus to set people free I mean, this is the miraculous work that we see in Scripture as Jesus walks around from town to town and he heals the lame, as he cures the sick, as he sets people free from the bondages of, of the evil one working within them, as he delivers them from evil spirits. Jesus has the power to set people free from addictions. Jesus has the power to set people free from whatever bondage they might experience or face. Jesus has the power to release strongholds at work within people's lives, to transform not only our hearts and our souls, but our minds as well, so that we think and we see clearly as Jesus leads us and guides us and calls us to think and see. And I believe that Jesus makes this power available to all of us. Not, not just somebody who stands on a stage and talks about it, but it's available to each of us. The power is available to us as we draw closer to him, as we read his word, as we allow him to transform us through the renewing of our mind, through our daily encounter with him, with his presence, with his power. And so we're going to take a few minutes this morning to spend in prayer. And as we pray, I'm just going to give you some time to, to pray and to ask God to transform you. I want you to ask God, God, what, what do you want to reform within me? What in me needs your transforming power to, to, to work within, to change, to make more and more in line with your will and within your way? Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit power. 
And I want you to ask God who he wants you to share the good news of Jesus with. So let's spend some time in prayer together, church. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts and into our lives. But we do seek this transforming work that you desire to engage within us. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we can just make happen on our own. It's something that only comes as you work within us. And so, Lord, we invite you into our lives today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in. Come in like a fire to, to, to burn away whatever impurities we have within us. We invite you to search us, oh God. Search us and find any way within us that does not reflect your holiness. To refine us, Lord, by your power at work within us. Make us more and more like Jesus. To to put within us a, a new heart. To give us a new life. We pray that you would shape and mold and make our hearts renew our minds give us a different set of ears, ears that would hear and recognize and know your voice as you lead and call us, give us a different set of eyes, eyes to see you at work within our lives, within the lives of others, eyes to see the world as you see it, eyes to see people the way that you see them give us new mouths mouths that don't just proclaim whatever, but mouths that proclaim your goodness Fill us to overflowing with your compassion for the people around us. May our hearts break as we see people, uh, as lives hurting, people's lives filled with sin, people who are disconnected from you, people who are lost within their sin. Fill us with your compassion and give us a holy boldness to be able to tell others about what you have done for us. That as you transform us, as you work within us to renew us, Lord, that you would also use us to be a part of your transforming work within the world around us place people in our path that need to know the good news of Jesus. Lord, help us to be able to tell them about what you have done. Lord, set us free from every stronghold. Be at work to bring about uh, miracles, signs, and wonders for your glory. 
not so that we would be lifted up, but so that Christ would be lifted up. Trusting, believing that as he is lifted up, that he will draw all people unto himself. Lord, we pray that you would do this work within us this morning and each and every day as we engage in your word, as we engage in your work, that you would renew us, that we would experience and know those mercies that are new every morning, and be able to lean and trust on your faithfulness and on your goodness. Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We offer our church to you. We offer this place, this facility, every, every part of who we are. We place in your hands, Lord. We are yours. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people say amen.